basically translating the statement, he will not fail or be discouraged till he sets justice in the earth. He will, set, he will send forth judgment or justice unto victory. He will lead justice unto victory. Matthew, you see, had an eschatology of victory. He believed that the king would bring victory for the principles of justice on the earth. And in the 13th chapter of Matthew, just following this chapter, Jesus expounds the parables of his kingdom in which we find the parable, for instance, of the mustard seed, the growth of his kingdom from a very small entity to a huge tree in which all the birds of the heaven can flock to. And so as I see it, both the Old and the New Testament teach us that what we can expect during this period of time is the success of the Great Commission. Jesus is progressively subduing all his enemies under his feet. All nations are going to be converted and brought to him. There's going to be constant increase and in growth in his kingdom. This is not a period of parallel growth of good and evil, not a period of waiting just imminently for the return of Christ or the rapture. This is a period for constantly watching, constantly working, constantly doing the work of God's kingdom so that we will see the success of Jesus the principles of justice and the conversion of men. In Matthew, the 28th chapter, Jesus gives the Great Commission to the church in these terms. All power and authority in heaven and earth is mine. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Therefore, having gone, make all the nations my disciples. Now, is there any reason why the church cannot make all the nations the disciples of Jesus Christ. He has all power and authority, and therefore the power necessary is there. He is constantly with his church. He'll never desert his church. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The commandment is not be a witness to the nation. The commandment is not find a few scattered converts among the nations. The commandment is make the nations my disciples. So we expect the Christianization of the world. We expect widespread revival. We expect progressive growth as nation after nation falls before the onslaught of the kingdom of God. And we expect that those nations will embody the principles of righteousness and justice found in the law of God. In Isaiah, we read the promise in chapter 11 that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, how do the waters cover the sea? Representatively, a little puddle here and a little puddle there, a few converts here and a few converts there. No, the day is coming in which the earth will be so full of the knowledge of the Lord, it will be like the waters covering the sea. God once flooded the earth in judgment in the days of Noah, and in the days of his own son, Jesus Christ, he's going to flood the earth in the knowledge of the Lord. He's going to bring salvation from shore to shore as every nation is discipled and becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And that, according to the post-millennial, is the confident expectation of the entire Bible. Let me give you just two final confirmatory New Testament passages of what could be many, many, many more that we could be reading. First of all, I'd like to read for you Romans, the um, 11th chapter, what Paul has to say about the conversion of the Jews and its effect upon the world. Romans 11, at verse 11. I say then, did they stumble, that is the Jews, that they might fall? God forbid. 
but by their fall salvation came to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. The Jews will see what God is doing in the Gentile world. The Jews will see the success of the kingdom among the Gentiles and they'll be provoked to jealousy, to want the blessing of God again. Now if their fall is the riches of the world and their loss the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. But I speak to you that are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I glorify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy them that are of my flesh, that is the Jews, and may save some of them. For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world, if the casting away of the Jews ethnically is the reconciling of the Gentile world to God, what shall the receiving of the Jews into the kingdom be but life from the dead? And if the first fruit is holy, so is the lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and thou being a wild olive was grafted in among them, and didst become partaker with them of the root of the fatness of the olive tree, glory not over the branches, but if thou gloriest, it is thou that bearest the root, but the root not the it is not thou that bearest the root, but the root thee. Thou shalt say, Then branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, by their unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by thy faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, neither will he spare thee. Behold, then the goodness and severity of God toward them that fell severity, but toward thee God's goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off, and they also, if they, continue not in, if they continue not in their unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. The day is coming in which the Jews are going to be grafted back into the olive tree of faith. In that day, Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. And if the casting off of Israel was the glory of the Gentiles and the reconciliation of the world, then you can be sure that the bringing back of the Jews into the kingdom, when all Israel shall be saved, is going to mean life from the dead for the entire world. Paul can't think of any other image to characterize the blessing of the gospel age than life from the dead, because the Jews too will be saved in mass when they see the Gentiles blessed by God. Finally, Revelation, the 19th chapter, I don't have time to read it. Let me just summarize verses 11 to 21. John sees the vision of Christ coming forth upon a white horse as a conquering warrior. And upon this white horse, the conquering warrior rides forth into battle against all the forces of unbelief and opposition to his kingdom. And he defeats all these forces in a very, very stupendous, dramatic way. He defeats them so much that the birds of heaven feed upon the flesh of those who have been defeated, which was an ancient image for utter, utter conquest. The important thing in Revelation 19 is to remember the kind of victory we're talking about. You say, well, if the birds eat upon their flesh, it must be a physical kind of battle. <clears throat> no, not at all. That's the image. That's the figure of speech. That's the symbol. That's the symbol of conquest. But the battle is a spiritual battle. For John twice says the sword by which this rider defeats the world nations is the sword that proceeds from his mouth. Jesus is not here engaging in miraculous gymnastics, killing people physically with the sword from his mouth. Rather, Jesus here is preaching the word of God, for he is using the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the preached gospel. As Warfield says in his doctrine, excuse me, in his article on the doctrine of the millennium, that what we have here in fine is the whole course of world history from the first to the second advent of Jesus Christ 
in one symbol, the symbol of utter conquest by the preached word of God. Now this and many other passages convince me as a post-millennialist then that although I agree with the all-millennialist, Jesus comes after the millennium, and I agree the millennial kingdom of God was established in the first advent, I agree that the church is the kingdom and has replaced Israel, and I agree that the thousand years is not literal, that I do have the utter confidence that the world nations will be converted by the preaching of the gospel and the principles of righteousness and justice will be embodied in their cultures and that according to the prophetic word of God. Now, do you have any questions about this? Okay. Some eschatological writers seem to identify the church and the kingdom of Christ. Yes, they do. I think that there's a, um, an element of truth there. Uh, the Bible does say in Matthew 16 that... Um, that Jesus will establish his church upon the rock of Peter's confession, I believe, or the apostolic confession more generally, and that he will have the keys of the kingdom. And so there's an intimate relationship between the church and the kingdom. Those who enter the kingdom do so by means of the church, apparently. However, it's also true that according to the book of Acts, it is the kingdom of God that establishes the church. And if it's the kingdom of God, which is to say the reign of Jesus Christ, the dominion of Jesus Christ that establishes the church, then we cannot say that the kingdom strictly is the church. And in fact, in the parable of the tares that we read earlier, Jesus speaks of the field being the kingdom, and the field is the world. And so Jesus reigns throughout the world as king of kings and lord of lords. In, in a general sense, the whole world is his kingdom. However, people do not belong to that kingdom without belief. They don't belong to that without coming through the agency of the church, but even the church is a manifestation of the kingdom rather than being identical with the kingdom. Would you say just a further word about the distinction between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God? Christ is to turn the kingdom over to the Father as you read that verse. Yes. Um, I believe that the distinction is a very slight one. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ can be used synonymously and coterminously in the Bible. However, this distinction can be drawn that the kingdom of Christ is his mediatorial rule, that he left his throne on high uh, to become our Savior, to become a man, and as part of the saving economy of God and the kingship of Jesus Christ, he will rule as mediator over the world nations, and he will bring them back to God and he will consummate the kingdom and then turn over his work as uh, redeemer, as mediator uh, to God. And so he, will al he always is, ever will be God in the full sense, in reign in the same sense that God the Father does. But as in the economic relationship between the Father and Son, he came as Son to redeem people and to rule as king, as mediator. That kingdom of Christ is going to be turned over to the Father as the consummated work that he came to do in the plan of salvation. And so in that sense, Christ does turn over his own kingdom to the Father. But of course, since he and the Father are one, he too will enjoy for all eternity the work that he has accomplished as the mediatorial savior. Do you mean that you have already conquered death? There's the already and the not yet aspects of that. He has already conquered death and that he, the first fruits, has risen from the dead. 
so that death no longer has its sting for the Christian. That, of course, is the doctrine of Paul at the end of that chapter. However, Jesus has not accomplished all that that victory entails. If you will, Jesus is involved in a mopping up exercise now. Now Jesus is working out the implications and applications of his rule and his conquering of death. And he, has, at this point, has not conquered death finally because Christians still die. In principle, he has conquered it because death is no threat to us. We know we'll be raised from the dead. We know that we're reconciled with God and will enjoy his presence even though we're absent from the body. But until that day in which the new creation is complete and all of us have been raised from the dead in glorified bodies, death continues to menace us and is continuing to be the enemy of God's people. That enemy will not be defeated until Jesus comes and the last day arrives, according to Paul. So in principle, yes. In actual fact, it's still being worked out. I would liken that to our sanctification. Are we sanctified? The answer to that in the Bible is yes and no. In principle, we are holy and set apart unto God and pure in his sight. But in practice, we still sin, don't we? And so God is working out the implications of our, if you will, definitive sanctification progressively in our lives. Now, the definitive defeat of death has already been seen that Jesus rose from the dead. But progressively, the implication and application of that's being worked out uh, so that at the end of history, he is going to defeat death once and for all by bringing his people to life again. I think you see the already and the not yet also in Hebrews chapter 2, where in verse yeah. 5 the writer says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one, Hebrews 2, 5, But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that thou rememberest him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. All things are subject, but we do not yet see the evidence that all things are. But we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels. And as we see the trophy of God, we see the principle, we see the victor right there. We don't, we don't see all the, all the applications of his victory, but we do see the victor. And so we know that he's in the process of subduing all the other enemies to him. That's a very good passage for um, showing both those aspects of it. You're right. Okay. In the, uh, I recognize first that history is not... Um, does not sit in judgment of God in any intent. But, um, can you give a, a, an example or some examples of historically the working out of the continued and expanding growth of the kingdom? Well, yeah, I think if you look at the early church and you see the persecution that the early church suffered and the unrighteousness of the age in which they lived, you can uh, then scan history up to our own day and understand that we are living off the fruits of a Christian culture, the Puritan past in our country. We see the freedom of the churches to preach the gospel. Uh, we see the number of converts throughout history. There have certainly been ups and downs and valleys and, 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 and heights and all of the growth, but it's been from the smallness of a mustard seed, a very small sect of only 11 after all, that has grown and grown and grown and grown until we have Christian churches established almost everywhere around the world. So there has been a progressive growth even though there have been ups and downs. 
We see the darkness of the Middle Ages and Roman Catholic sacerdotalism. We see the glory of the Reformation. We see, if you will, the deadness of the second generation orthodoxy, and we see the, the power of the Puritan revival. And so um, we do see the ups and downs, but at every point there is progress. The early church had a very weak view, I'm not talking about the apostolic church, but the patristic church had a very weak view of soteriology, but they did work out their Christology fairly well. Then the Reformation works out soteriology much better, all right? And, so there, and then there's a progressive growth beyond that as well in, in other areas. Uh, and so there is a, a doctrinal advance in the church as well as it's systematically working out the implications of the faith. Steady growth only yeah, on the long haul, it's a steady growth, but there are ups and downs along the way. So if you want to plot it, then you're going to find some points that are lower than previous points. There are declines and so forth. But if you, as you know, if you're doing grafting and you have to do one straight line, that line's not going to go like this, as a premillennialist tells you. By definition, the church is going downhill <coughs> from the early days. That line's going to be an ascending line of constant growth. Uh-huh. Um, in some of the passages you read, one of the things that I that I like for you to explain some more is um, the distinction between, let's say, taking something exactly literally and um, and figuratively. Uh, some of the passages that speak of like a universal. Do you see those? How universal do you see those? If you if you follow my, my meaning, yeah. when we talk of every of everyone. Is that looking at a great multitude? Is that looking at right. a majority? There's a difference between literal interpretation and hyperbolic interpretation. Or there's a difference between figurative interpretation and hyperbolic interpretation. And I can explain it this way. If the Bible says that the uh, knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and somebody takes that literally... Uh, then that means that knowledge is like water in some sense. Well, we don't take it literally, we take it figuratively. But I have talked to people who, because they take it figuratively, feel they don't have to take it in terms of the thrust of the hyperbole involved. The hyperbole is that the knowledge of God is going to be pervasive. Now, you cannot, because you don't take a literal approach to interpretation, say, therefore it will not be pervasive. It just means you can't liken it in all ways to water. It's a figure of speech. But the figure of speech is trying to tell us something, that the vast majority of people are going to be converted. Somebody says, oh, you see, you don't really believe it, because if you take that in its full force, it says everybody will be converted. That's the way the water covers the sea. To which I usually say, well, I'd prefer to take it that way than to take it in the way that says, well, it doesn't mean what it says at all. I happen to think that that's hyperbolic. Hyperbole means exaggeration for the sake of making a point. And that is used constantly in the Bible. It's not lying. It's not deceiving. It's not misleading. It's, if you will, like a caricature, overdrawing something so that you don't miss the point. Jesus said, and if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Jesus did not believe in maiming. We can see that in any any number of places in the Bible. But Jesus said by way of exaggeration, it's better to enter into life without a hand than to enter into life not at all. And so, by way of exaggeration, he makes his point. By way of exaggeration, the prophet said, the knowledge of the Lord, the principle is going to change. We're the exception to the rule. We're the righteous remnant. We're the minority. But in that day, it's going to be just the opposite. Then the knowledge of God is going to be pervasive. Okay, so um, 
you have to take that either in the sense of universal salvation in that final day, or at least in pervasive salvation, and I'm saying I opt for, because of other passages that would modify and explain this, the wheat and the tares grow together until the end, that that means there's going to be a lot more wheat than tares. Let's remember that when the wheat and the tares grow together till the end, this world is still a wheat field and not a tare field. Jesus doesn't say the wheat grows among the tares. He says the tares grow among the wheat. Other questions? Uh, one scripture that had kind of, uh, concerned me Okay, Revelation 20 tells us that toward the end of the millennial period in the latter-day glory that Satan will be released for a period of time and uh, the vast majority of people are going to apostatize in that day. Now somebody might ask, why after all these victories will God allow that to happen? Well, in his own wisdom, he has decided to do that. I have some speculative reasons for why he might. I won't bother to share those with you now because the Bible doesn't seem to answer that question. Of course, it's not our job to explain the ways of God. It's simply our job to faithfully proclaim them. And the Bible does tell us there's going to be a great apostasy in the final day. Now, to my way of thinking, there can't be any great apostasy in the final day on a premillennial or amillennial interpretation because there's no latter-day glory from which the world could apostatize. I mean, apostasy means a falling off from, you know, this great victory that we've already seen. Amillennialism doesn't have a great victory from which there could be any fall. And so, if anything, that seems to prove postmillennialism all over again through the back door, but nevertheless to show it. And why God's going to do it, I can only speculate. But because he's going to do that, we know that there will be a period of time in which it's possible that a man of sin might arise. I don't personally believe the man of sin is a future figure. I think he was a past figure. Then he was the Roman emperor in the days of the fall of Jerusalem. But I may be wrong about that. And if I am, the man of sin is going to arise during this period of apostasy at the very end. And if the Bible teaches Jesus is going to come upon an apostate, unbelieving world, that accounts for those passages of Scripture. But now let's ask, is that passage of Scripture you refer to teaching that? I don't think so. Now, if it does, we've got a place for it in our system, all right? So what I'm saying is it can accommodate that interpretation. But where Paul tells us that um, evil men are going to wax worse and worse, he's talking specifically of his own day. For he tells Timothy that Timothy himself is going to have to deal with this problem. Moreover, Paul does not say evil men are going to wax more and more. He says they're going to wax worse and worse. That is, evil men are going to become even more evil. They're going to work out more and more the principle of rebellion within them. He doesn't say they're going to add to their numbers more and more and more. 
Okay, so secondly, we don't have any problem with that passage. It's in Paul's own day. The waxing of evil men worse and worse pertains to the intensity of their evil and not the, uh, the numbers that they have. And I thought I had one other thing I wanted to say about that, but it slips in my mind right now. Oh yes, persecution. If good and evil are going to exist together until the end, as the post-millennialists and the amillennialists believe, then there always will be those who are going to scorn, ridicule, and do their best to persecute the Church of Jesus Christ. There are two ways to suffer, one must remember. One can suffer as he is whimpering over in the corner and being beat upon. One can also suffer as a soldier upon the battlefield. And you know that even though the United States war won World War II, it suffered. And the fact that the victory is ours doesn't mean that we aren't going to suffer in the process. And so I do believe that we will be persecuted until the end, but I do believe that our persecutions are going to accomplish something. I believe the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church, and consequently, the more they try to kill us, the more we're going to see that we are the victors. Indeed, that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Well, I think you've probably had enough. I've kept you here longer than more. most seminary students have to sit down for a period. And I appreciate your tolerance. If I have, by any means, um, stepped on any toes or said things in a way that's been offensive, I know these are highly emotional areas and people can get upset. I hope you'll forgive me and you'll give me the opportunity to talk to you more about it uh, privately. Um, and if there's been anything said that's been helpful in clarifying what the Bible has to say, I, I trust that you'll give glory to God and that, uh, that it will reform your life and the way you look at things and the way you do things. Uh, Post-millennialists don't simply hold the view that they do uh, because they think it's distinctive and right and all that, but they hold this view with a great sense of confidence and, and want other people to hold it because we think it's going to impel the church to do its job. If the Great Commission is not being fulfilled, it's not the Lord's fault. He has all power and authority and he's with us. He's faithful, if you will, in doing what he ought to be doing. If the Great Commission is not being fulfilled, it's only because we as the Church are failing to fulfill the task given us. And so if I help you to fulfill that task by reorienting your thinking, then this afternoon will have been well worth it for me. Thank you.